it's always been the same. I stop, I look, I dream, but I don't take the step. History tells us that in times of war, many commanders have given their prisoners the task of digging huge holes and moving the dirt in sacks across the camp, then dumping that dirt out in a huge pile. Weeks of digging, moving dirt, hauling soil. And sometimes, just as the hole was dug, as the prisoners could muster some sense of accomplishment, some hint of purpose, the commander would order the prisoners to move the dirt back and fill in the hole they just dug. The epitome of meaningless work. I know I'm not in a prison camp. Right now, my life feels like that. Work, buy, impress, whatever it is that day. I'm not actually accomplishing anything. I have no purpose. I am just digging, moving dirt, making a pile of what? I stop, I look, I dream of something more. It's always been the same, but not today. Today, I take the step. Today, I become more. Today, I realize I've made myself a prisoner. Today I decide my status does not give me purpose. Today I decide to love God rather than money. Today I decide to pursue my creator rather than success. Today I return to my father. next? Where does he go? What does he do with his newfound freedom? And what choices does he decide to make now? And as I watch this video, I can't help but think about all of the self-imposed prison camps that we place ourselves into in our own lives, that we're continually just digging and digging and digging away at the routines of life because we think that there's some kind of value or purpose or significance found in these things. But the reality is, if we think 
that in these things under the sun is really where our life's purpose is, we're going to come up with the same realization as Solomon does in Ecclesiastes real quick, that life, well, it's just not worthwhile. That it just leaves us with these feelings of emptiness and frustration. And so we really need to do this reality check of our own lives and begin to ask ourselves the hard questions like, what is it that's always been the same for me? What prison camps of my own making am I currently stuck in, just digging and working away in this routine that we don't know why because there's no meaning or purpose in sight or at the end of it? So I started to prepare this sermon this week. I started to ask myself these same questions. Questions of what are the prison camps that I find in my own life and how do I get out of them? What is it that I think that God is trying to reveal to me as I read through chapters seven and eight of Ecclesiastes that can help make me a better person, that can influence my life and give me some kind of direction or a purpose so I don't have to continually find myself digging these pointless holes in life. And it was in the midst of this that God kind of showed me what it was. And it may sound weird to all of you, and so I'll explain it in just a minute. But I think the prison camp, humbly speaking, that I find myself in is that I've been gifted with the talent, with the desire, with the passion, and the ability to learn. I love learning in all different experiences, all different walks of life. And I think that God has placed so many opportunities and experiences in my life specifically so that I would learn from them that I would be influenced by them and I would be a better person because of them. And many of you may be like, well, that doesn't really sound like a prison camp. But you see, the prison camp in my mind is the fact that I don't share those things with others. See, as a pastor, one of my responsibilities, one of my roles is if I know that there's something out there that can make somebody better or challenge a person to reconnect with God or better their life, you better bet I should be sharing it. I shouldn't be hesitant. But for some reason, sometimes I hold on to these things because they're too personal or because it's a moment, an intimate moment between just me and God, and I don't want to share them. And so as I began to write this message, I really felt convicted from God to share a few of those moments with you, to share some of the most personal moments of my life that have given me some insight and have blessed me and challenged me and encouraged me to be a better person, some life lessons, if you will. And I'm not saying these to boast or to brag or to say that I'm all that in a bag of potato chips, but I say it in hopes that it will challenge you. I give them to you in hopes that it will encourage you to think differently, maybe to view something differently that may be happening in your life right now and how you can choose to respond to it. Just a way to challenge and to bless you this morning. And so the first life lesson that I've learned is this, that all people are significant. All people are significant. My second year of Bible college, I had a class called World Religions, and I felt that this was an amazing class. I learned lots of different world religions, and I felt pretty astute that I knew everything there was to know in this class. I was learning, I was loving it, and it was going great. And I remember we had a quiz one day. I had studied long and hard for the quiz, and when the time came, I sat down, I got the quiz in front of me, and I started checking off the boxes. Man, this is a piece of cake. Man, I am so prepared for this. This is going great. I know all these answers until I got to the very last one. The very last question said, what is the name of the cleaning lady at our school? And at first I thought, this has to be a joke, (laughs) right? Like, 
First off, how on earth am I supposed to know her name? And this is a university. There's one cleaning lady for the entire university. Like this, this is, this is setting me up for failure. But the OCD and the perfectionist side of me said, even if it is a joke, you can't leave it blank. You've got to fill it out. You've got to put something there. So I have this internal struggle. Do I just make up a name and be like, Shaquisha? You know, or like, do I just put a name down that I just think maybe, you know, uh, Betty, uh, Susan, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Should I put a name there or should I leave it blank? And I struggled. And I searched my mind to think, can I think of anybody on campus who might meet this description? And I remember there was this one older, shorter lady who always wore a blue polo shirt and carried a trash bag around with her, but that couldn't have been her. I mean, yeah, I may have seen her 100, 200 times in the two years that I had been there, almost every day as I would walk to and from class, but how was I supposed to know her name? So I gave in nevertheless, and I just decided it was better to leave it blank than just to make up a name, and I turned it in, and once you turn in your quiz, you were allowed to leave. So I grab my backpack, and I get ready to leave when I hear a student behind me ask the question I should have asked. Professor, how much is this question worth on this quiz? To which the professor responded, it's weighted over 50% of your entire grade. <laughs> and amongst the cries and the groans and the screams from the rest of the class that told me I wasn't alone, he told me something that always stuck with me. And he said this, in your life and in your careers, you will encounter and experience many different people. And they'll come from all walks of life but every single one of them is significant. And all people are deserving of your attention regardless of who they are, even if it's something as simple as a smile and a hello. And that's something that always stuck to me this day. Later on, uh, after all the grunts and groans subsided, he told us that this lady actually happened to be the wife of the original founder of the school, who when he passed, he had one final wish to her, and it was that she would take care of the school. So she made it her life's purpose every morning to come and pick up trash on campus for the ungrateful students like me who took advantage of her and the situation and the beauty of the place in which I got to learn every single day. And it always stuck with me that it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what you think about somebody, even the least of these people in our lives, everyone is significant even if we don't deserve to recognize that ourselves. Which brings me to my second life lesson, which is this, and this one's uh, a little bit more funny, but um, <laughs> it's always remember those who serve. One of my first jobs was working at a Dairy Queen. Um, I know some of you laugh at that, but that's okay. Uh, one of my first jobs was working at a Dairy Queen. I remember it was a hot summer day and I was standing behind the counter. We had a line out the door. One of our machines was broken. We were understaffed. The voice box out at the drive-thru was cutting in and out. So people were yelling at us because we couldn't understand their order. It was a nightmare of a situation. And I remember in line, this long line, a mother and her small child come up to the counter and she kind of nudges him and he stands up on his tiptoes and says, excuse me, sir, how much for a large ice cream cone? To which I respond, 265. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a bunch of change and he starts pushing it around in his hand and he uses the other hand to count and then he pushes it around, uses his hand and eventually he looks back up and he says, how much is a medium ice cream cone? And I say, it's 235. He looks back down at his hand and starts pushing things around. At this point, I'm a little irritated. I'm like, didn't you just count? Like, you're four. You should know how to count. You know what's in your hand. Like, come on, man. And then I look at the mom, and I'm like, 
why aren't you helping? Like, you got the money. Why don't you just pay for his cone? Give him a large cone and let's be done with this so I can help other people. I was frustrated. I was angry. And after what seemed like an eternity of counting in his hand and in his mind, the boy looks up and says, how much is a small ice cream cone? And I snap. <laughs> this was the non-pastoral, non-Christian side of me. And I'm like, 199, you know? And the boy's like taken back a little bit, but he smiles and he responds and he says, okay, I'll take a small cone. And so I turn around and I make the perfect 1.25 ounce cone with the beautiful DQ swirl on the top. And I slide it back across and hand it to him. And he drops his change on the counter and just kind of like sticks to the counter. It's all sticky and gooey. And he walks away happily licking and skipping as his mom says, good boy. And I remember sitting there sliding and counting the sticky change as it was coming across the counter to realize that the boy had dropped 275. And I got upset. I got frustrated. How dare he make me jump through all of these hoops when he had enough to begin with? So I grab his change. Actually, I'm pretty sure I shortchanged him. He should have got 76 cents, but I only gave him 75 cents. I grab it. I walk back. I'm irritated with the boy, so I don't even make eye contact with him enjoying his cone. I look at the mom and say, you forgot your change, right? With like almost sass, to which the boy responds and he says, no, sir, that's for you for making my cone. You see, that taught me something that day that I was not deserving to be thanked or to be recognized for the service I provided for that child. He had enough to have a large ice cream cone, but he sacrificed that and tipped very generously so that way he could thank the people who serve him. And that's something that's always stuck with me in my life. And that's why it's a life lesson to always remember those who serve. The third life lesson is a little bit more personal, so bear with me. And it's this, every obstacle presents an opportunity to improve our condition. For most of you know, for her whole life, my wife Tiffany has struggled with an undiagnosed chronic illness that has made it difficult for her to normally function as a human being. Um, and because of the amounts of pain, she's had to been on lots and lots and lots of pain medication just to help manage and allow her to function. She's dealt with it all of her, her high school years, into college, and even into the first few years of our marriage. And I've seen her days when were good days, when she was at a five out of 10, where she was feeling good enough to get up and go get some fast food and come back home and lay back down again. And I've seen her days where she was 10 of 10, where she was curled up in a ball crying on the bed because it just hurt too much to function. It hurt too much just to be alive, even on all of her pain medication. And about a year ago, we decided that I wasn't getting any younger, and we wanted to start to have a family. But in order to do so, that meant that Tiffany would have to come off of all of her pain medication. And that was a big sacrifice for her, but it was something she was willing to do because she really wanted to have a child. And so we enabled down this road in a very healthy manner, seeking some advice from the doctors. And let me tell you, withdrawal, man, it's real, and it's scary. I have seen Tiffany go through some of the most horrendous things that I can't even imagine going through. And I am so proud of just how courageous and brave that you are through every single step of that, knowing what the ultimate outcome would be. And she finally got to a point where she weaned off all of her pain medication, but was still in a ton of pain, but was able to kind of self-manage it and function. And so we decided it was time to start having kids only to be hit right in the face with another large obstacle. See, Tiffany was diagnosed with a brand new condition called polycystic ovary syndrome, which pretty much meant at this stage in her life, she could never have children, or it would be nearly impossible to have children. And I remember seeing the light fade from her face when she found this out. Her hopes, her dreams, everything that she had worked so hard for, the sacrifices she had made, 
gone in the blink of an eye with one diagnostic and the heart-crushing experience that came after that. And it was hard for me to watch her have to deal with this. And I think the doctor saw this too because the doctor recommended that there was some hope that there are other treatments out there. You can see infertility specialists, there's pills, there's shots, there's doctor visits, there's x-rays, there's all these things, but it's never a guarantee that your situation will fix because it's kind of hard. Odds are it won't happen. But nevertheless, we decided to give it a shot. And so we tried and went down this very long road, a very painful, emotional, uh, costly road to try to figure this out, only to be met time and time and time again that it wasn't working, that nothing was happening. And that was hard because we'd get our hopes up that maybe this one will be the one only to hear nothing has changed. And so I remember coming home one day and Tiffany is waiting and she talks to me. We didn't play Halo that night. Um, she talks to me and she says, Matt, I think I finally come to terms with the fact that God doesn't want me to have children. And that was hard for me to hear because I knew how much she wanted to have children. I knew how important that was to her and how important it was to me. And to see her get to a place when she's saying, the only sense that I can make of this whole situation is that my purpose in life from God is not to have children. And that was hard for me to hear. And so we prayed about it and we surrendered it and we gave it over and said, God, let your will be done. And Tiffany kept praying all throughout that week. And in the course of the week, she let go and she gave it to God and said, God, I'm at peace with this decision. God, that if this is your will, then let this be your will and let me be at peace. And she was at peace. It was about a week later that she felt that something was wrong, that something was different, something was off. And so she took a test only to find out that the efforts had worked and that something had changed. And despite all of the infertility doctors, the shots, the pain meds, the pills, all of these things, I'm so very happy to announce that Tiffany's pregnant. So, <laughs> and we are expecting our little ball of joy come January. I'm not sure if it's going to be a cat or not yet, but um, these are our cats. Obviously, you can tell they're not too happy with this decision that we've decided to make for the family. Um, but what I have learned through this whole entire experience is this, is that this world will throw obstacles at you. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, you will encounter obstacles of various sizes, various shapes, and they'll come when you least expect it. But if you learn to truly surrender and give control to God, he shows up in an amazing, powerful way. And what we've learned through this is that even despite all of these obstacles and all the hardship, Tiffany has kind of found a new purpose in life in helping other women who are going through the very same struggles she's been through, giving them encouragement that there is hope, that there is light on the other side, and that she's a testament of it. And so the life lesson that I've learned is that even though we have obstacles in our life, God still allows a greater opportunity to come from it a blessing on the other side that we may never have seen or expected. The last life lesson, I'll give you this real quick. It came from a story I actually read. It's give because it counts. Give because it counts. It's a story that I read that I've never forgotten it. It was about a little girl who was diagnosed with a very rare and serious blood disease. And the only cure for this blood disease was a very specific type of blood that was immune to the disease that she had. And it was extremely rare, even more so than her condition. Well, after some testing, they found out that her even younger brother had the blood that was immune to this disease. 
And so as the doctors were talking with the parents about options and what's going on and the risks that were involved and him being so young and allowing this transfusion to happen, the boy spoke up and said, I want to do it. And so as they laid down on the tables and the transfusion started, the boy was smiling from ear to ear as he could see the color returning into the face of his sister. But then his smile turned to a frown as the light and the color began to fade from his own face. And he turned to his parents and the doctor and he said, so I begin to die slowly or quickly? You see, the boy thought that the only way to save his sister was by giving all of his blood. And he was willing to sacrifice his life so she could live. Because to him, that's what counted. He gave not because he was forced to, not because he was coerced to, but because he could see the benefit in it. He could see the blessing in it. He could see the life that came from making this sacrifice in his own life. And that story has always stuck with me that we give not because we have to, we give because we see the true benefit in it. We see the blessings that come from it. As I always tell Tiffany, those who are blessed should bless the rest. That we should go out and try to help other people, not because we have to, but because it's our heart's desire and it's who we are deep down inside. See, these are the things over the years that have really influenced my life and have allowed me to find meaning and purpose and significance. And in the midst of them all, what I've realized is that life is made up of a million little choices, a million little decisions, a million little moments that should encourage us, should challenge us to take a deep, long, hard look at our lives to say, what are we doing with our lives? How are we investing our time? What reputation, what legacy, what name are we leaving behind us? And so the question I ask is, when people look at you, what do they see? If you were to die today, how would people remember you? As someone who was wise, giving, forgiving, loving, merciful, joyful? As someone who, when they looked at, they could see the power and the love of God radiating in everything that they did? Or as someone who your family and friends are going to have a hard time finding a pastor who's willing to lie about you at your funeral? That's the reality, and the choice is yours. That's a choice that only you can make. And this is exactly what Solomon begins to talk about in chapters 7 and chapters 8. And I didn't want to spend a whole ton of time going verse by verse in 7 and 8, because here's the reality of it. It's pretty much the same thing that we've read in 1 through 6. It's Solomon. He feels that there's this emptiness in his life, and he goes for it. He tries to find meaning and purpose, and he labors away only to find it leaves him frustrated. So then he turns his efforts and he tries this thing thinking it's going to find meaning and purpose in his life only to be frustrated and let down again. And it's this routine, this cycle that goes back and forth and back and forth. And so I wanted to do something a little bit different this morning with our remaining time. Instead of following and closely tracing every single step, every single decision, trying to nitpick at Solomon saying, well, if you did it maybe this way, you would have had a different outcome that we don't necessarily follow the journey this way, but instead we take and see what is it that Solomon is really trying to get at in these passages. Meaning if I were to walk away today not knowing anything about Solomon's journey, what are the life lessons that Solomon is trying to impart upon me that would better my life? Moreover, what is God trying to show me through Solomon's experiences that can really make a difference in my life and how I choose to live? And so that's what I want to do is take a look at some of Solomon's life lessons. And the first one is found in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It says this, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. 
It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take this to heart. Now here's a forewarning for all of you. Solomon's life lessons are way more dark and depressing than mine, but you'll see where we're going with it. The first life lesson that Solomon gives us is this. Death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. You see, you and I, we're all gonna die one day. That is the sad reality of this life. But that reality, it shouldn't discourage us from mourning, from being sad and being sorrowful when things happen to us. Things happen to people whom we love when we see the world crumbling down around us. And I know there's a ton of people who have a hard time coming to terms with how an all-loving and an all-gracious God can allow so much tragedy to happen in this world. And I hear people say all the time, man, that person died way too young. They died before their time. But to me, see, making statements like that means that if you were in control, you would choose to do something differently than our all-knowing and our all-loving God does. And I can't understand that. That just doesn't make sense to me when I really put the two and two together. You know, about a week and a half ago, I had the opportunity to attend the funeral of one of our beloved church family members here. And in the midst of the sorrow, the grief, and the mourning here, I felt God speak to me and say something that really pertained to my message this morning, and it was this. People ultimately have no choice in the circumstances that bring about their death, but they do have a choice in their death. In their death, you can choose today whether or not when you die, you end up at the entrance of heaven being greeted by a warm, loving, affectionate God who's bringing a life free of pain and sorrow and worry, who can bring a joy that you can only experience in the presence of the Lord. Or will you choose to go to a place of eternal suffering, of eternal torment and eternal pain? That choice is yours when you die. To me, it doesn't sound like that should be a choice at all, <laughs> especially because we have this promise from Jesus that says, look, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In view of that promise, we shouldn't be afraid of death. Rather, we should be excited to live life and make the most of it while we're here, knowing with certainty that God has already called us to something greater in this life and in the next. And we shouldn't be afraid of death. We shouldn't allow that to hold captive and dictate what we labor away at in our life with no end in sight, but rather we should use our lives to do something good while we have the opportunity to do so. And that's why I think Solomon, his point here is, look, death is inevitable, but that doesn't dictate how you live your life and the impact that you can make while you're alive. That's the life lesson we get, turning it from a dark to a positive. Yes, death is inevitable, but you can still do good while you're here. The second life lesson we see comes from chapter or verse 14 and 15. It says, when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living in their wickedness. The second life lesson is that life is inequitable. Life is inequitable. That's a fancy word for saying life is unfair. It's the reality. Life is unfair. I've heard people say so many times, that's just not fair. I heard it a lot from my wife, Tiffany, as we would see on Facebook and on Instagram, these stories of family and friends who were getting pregnant and having kids and families so easily, who it seemed like their lives were building up and moving on while we kept getting left behind. And her saying, it's just not fair. I've also heard it from the mouth of children because children have this innate sense of justice in them to know whether or not something is fair or not. And they will let you know. 
That's not fair, right? We've all heard it before. But even adults, even children, we all have this trait of justice, this trait of of right versus wrong inside of us because it is a trait that God has given to us. But the world has strayed away from that. And that's why, unfortunately, the world that we live in, it just isn't fair. It just isn't fair. But that doesn't mean that when we see an injustice that we shouldn't do something about it. That if you have the power to make a wrong thing a right, you should do so. You see, I think that truly in this life, there are both good things and bad things, but God is in them both. God can work through both of them. And in those moments, he reveals two things about us. First, what you really believe about God. And second, who you are really on the inside and how you choose to respond to these things, what you choose to do as a result of these things. And so when I really look at that, that's what Solomon's trying to get at. Yeah, life is unfair. Life, it doesn't always go the way that we want it to be. But guess what? You still can make a difference. You still can make a better movement in the world that exists around you. Stop waiting for your world to change and be the change that you want to see happen. But it's a choice. And you're the only one who can choose that. Nobody said it was going to be easy. There will be sacrifice involved. But when you choose to truly live beyond yourself, and to start living for the sun instead of for things under the sun, your life begins to change. And you realize it's not the things that happen to you, but it's how you respond to them, how you work through them, and how you can still show God in the midst of them. See, even when life's unfair, it's an opportunity for us to cry out to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to make a difference in this situation? And he'll show you. Just because life is unfair doesn't mean that God still doesn't want to move. The third life lesson we get comes from chapter 7, verse 27 to 29. It says, adding one thing to another, discovering the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found, God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Now, there's lots of life lessons I can pull from this, but I'm choosing to go a very specific route. And the route is this. The life lesson Solomon imparts is that humanity, all of it, is intolerable. All of humanity is intolerable. You see, all of us sin, even good people. I bet you you can't find one person in your life you know that has never sinned. And it's not just the things that we do. It's also in the things that we say. People say some foolish, some harsh, and some sensitive things. And it's not just what we say, it's the things that we write too, what we write on Facebook and Instagram and emails in the comment section of your Belinda Buzz. Because if you ever read those comments, wow, there are some cutthroat things about coyotes and helicopters on there. So you're laughing because you know that hopefully none of you have actually commented yourself on there. But the reality is that each one of those things has the power to scar, has the power to hurt and leave a lifetime of damage that's going to be hard for people to get over hard for people to move through. A wise man once said, responding to criticism, he didn't insult me at all. In fact, he was talking about another man, the man that he thought I was. See, the reality is that all of mankind is depraved, but God didn't make us that way. Somehow along the course of history, we have gone astray from the original purpose that God has created us for. And that's why we spend all of our lives under the sun digging meanlessly in our prison camps of life because we think that's where purpose will be found. Completely neglecting the fact that God is standing over there calling us and saying, I have your purpose. Come to me. But we choose 
to be here rather than be here. And in the midst of that, when we see people and we see other things happening, the people who are in these camps, they get angry and bitter at the world around them and they start saying bad things and doing bad things. And that's why all of humanity is intolerable. But just because humanity is intolerable doesn't mean that we should give up on it because God hasn't given up on us. And what I truly see from this is that our true value and dignity of human life, it should be grounded in the fact that we are God's creation and that our worth, our value, our dignity, it isn't determined by things under the sun like status or wealth or success or how much you suffer in this life. No, your worth, your value has already been decided in the fact that you are a child of God. You are his. And God is saying, look, if you find yourself in a place where you're angry where you're hurt, where you're frustrated, where you feel inadequate, when you feel belittled, when you feel like everybody in the world is against you, stop listening to the world because the world's only going to feed you lies. Stop giving in to the power the world thinks that it has over you and listen to my voice, which says, come, cast your burdens, your anxieties, your pains, your worries, your woes, lay it all at my feet because I am so madly and deeply in love with you that I would go to the ends of the world for you because that's how much you mean to me. Because that's where your value is found, not in these puny things that fade away of this earth, but in the concrete promises that I am God, I love you, and I want you. So come to me. And so what we see Solomon really saying here is that, yeah, humanity is intolerable, but God still loves us. God still loves us, and he still wants to use us, even despite our shortcomings and our failures. The fourth and final life lesson we learn is, comes from chapter 8, where he says this, So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life. God has given them under the sun. This one's pretty simple. It's pretty happy. It's simply God is in control. God is in control. Again and again and again in scripture and passages of the Bible, we read that God is in control of everything, including humanity. He's made the stars. He's created the heavens, the galaxies. He's uphold the universe with the truth of his word. He knows every thought we're ever going to commit, everything that we're ever going to do. He knows beginning from the end. And there's nothing that happens on this earth that God doesn't allow because he works in all things for the good of his people, for the good of his purpose and for his glory. And if God was merely an all-loving God, but not really in control of things, this world would be a very different, dark and scary place. But I think that's where a lot of us struggle is because we see the darkness that exists in this world and we say, how can God be in control? Because I don't see it. I can't even fathom what that would look like in my life. But all I know is that I am so grateful for the promises and for the sovereignty that God gives me, that he shows me through scripture, the promises that tells me that he is in control and I just need to give him control. Because when I do so, he enables me He allows me to persevere in my faith in a way that I never dreamed would have ever been possible. But it only happens when I truly choose to give him control and recognize that he is in control. And so the question for you this morning as I close is simply this. What choice are you going to make? 
You have a choice today, a choice every single day of your life to either find yourself caught in the routine, daily, monotonous, meaningless things of life where you're just digging away at your own prison camps because you have placed yourself there or to be set free by the name of Jesus Christ and to truly live out the life that he has called you to, a life of purpose, a life of doing good, a life of being generous, a life of being kind, a life of recognizing the value and the dignity of humanity, a life that truly desires to leave this place better than when you came into it. That choice is yours. So what choice are you committing to make today? As you think about that, take a look at this. The future is a million little choices. Practice or play video games. Two hours in the gym or two hours at the movies. A little extra work or a little extra play. Reconcile or let the sun go down on your anger. Get up or push the snooze button again. Take a potential client to the game or take a kid from a broken home. Spend that bonus on yourself or give it to a ministry that reaches out to pregnant teens. If we could get a picture of the future, if we could jump ahead 10, 15, 20 years, and see the accumulation of our decisions, the chain of events we set in motion, how differently would we live today? How would we choose to spend our time? What would we walk away from? How would we treat the people around us? What would we choose to pursue with passion? Where would we choose to invest our skills and our resources? Your future is a million little choices. And it starts today. I heard a lot of you say that you would hit snooze. And that, that's pretty powerful to think about, though. Life is a million little choices. What are you going to choose to do with your time? How will you be remembered? And what is it that God is calling you to do as we study through the book of Ecclesiastes to make your world a better place? Would you pray with me? Father, we, God, we just humbly come before you. God, so thankful. God, that this world doesn't own us. Uh, even though there may be obstacles, hardships in life that we all experience, Father, we have this promise that's grounded, that's founded in you, that we are yours. And there's nothing that this world can throw at us that will take that away. God, we're so grateful every day that we have the choice to continue doing the same things we've always been doing or to truly make a difference. And God, I pray that you just challenge us. God, as we go out these doors today, Father, that we would be different people. Father, that we would be different for you. That we would stop living these lies, stop putting on these facades, that we've got it all figured out. 
rather we would surrender and to claim that you are in control and all we want to do is be used by you and to show your love, to show your glory, to show your forgiveness and mercy to a world that's so desperately broken and in need of it around us. Father, I pray that you just move our hearts this morning to give us that desire to be different. That when we would see a situation, when we would encounter an opportunity, Father, that we wouldn't let it go, but we would pause for a moment and think, how can we make this situation better? What can we do differently with our lives to make a difference for you? That it not be about us, Father, but it be about giving you the glory in all that we do and praising and proclaiming your name. If this morning you feel with all eyes closed that you're ready to stop digging your normal routine prison camps of life and you're ready for something different, you're ready to find real purpose and real value and real meaning that only comes in the eyes of Jesus and you're ready to take that step, I'd just love to see you raise your hand. Father, we pray for just all of these people. Father, for everyone in this room that we would be markedly different as we leave these doors. Father, even though as soon as we step outside the world, the devil is gonna throw obstacles, hindrances, things in front of us, Father, to make us stumble, to make us forget. Father, I pray that as soon as we walk out these doors, Father, we would go proclaiming victory in you. God, that you are greater than any obstacle we could ever face and that we know without a doubt that you have called us to be something greater, to be something different, something that this world has never seen before. So God, I pray that you challenge us. Father, I pray that you allow the commitments of the hearts of all those who raise their hand just to be strong as they go out, Father, to truly begin to live a life for you. We love you. Pray this in your name.